the American West, Christopher Ketchum will be here to talk about his new book, This Land. Is the internet ruining the English language? Gretchen McCulloch will join us to discuss her new book, Because Internet. Plus, we'll talk about what we and the wider world are reading. This is the Book Review Podcast from The New York Times. I'm Pamela Paul. Christopher Ketchum joins us now, phoning in from the Catskills, his new book, This Land, How Cowboys, Capitalism, and Corruption Are Ruining the American West, is featured on our cover this week of the book review. Chris, thanks for being here. Hey, thank you for having me. Here you are in the Catskills. How did you get interested in writing about out west? Because I went west as a child many times with my dad, with my parents, and experienced the national parks. And then later went west as a as an adult and realized that the public land system of the West did not simply consist of the national parks. That in fact there was this enormous domain out there managed by mostly the Bureau of Land Management and the US Forest Service. And that this was land held in common by all American citizens. And as I, you know, as I put it in the book, it's sort of it's this fantastic socialist experiment in the world's most hyper-capitalistic nation. And so I thought to myself, man, this is incredible. I own this land. So do my daughters. So do all my friends. So does every newly naturalized immigrant in this country. We are all co-owners of this incredible, vast terrain of wildlands. So I figured, hey... I should write a book that celebrates and defends it. Well, defends is an interesting word because, as you point out, in many ways, even though this is public land, there are other influences there. So give us a sense of what the Bureau of Land Management is supposed to do with these non-park lands and what's actually being done with them. Okay, so, you know, the, the managing agencies like the Bureau of Land Management and the Forest Service operate under what's called a a multiple-use mandate. And multiple-use stipulates that the public lands shall be used, exploited, for everything from logging to oil and grazing to mineral extraction. But at the same time, those lands should be protected for ecological protection, for soil and air and water quality, for uh, archaeological finds, paleological finds, et cetera, et cetera. So in practice, the problem here is that multiple use is really multiple abuse. Mm-hmm. And you have widespread degradation of the environment and uh, in many places a catastrophic assault on ecological health across the public lands. Is part of the problem the way in which that's set up? I mean, it sounds like a kind of oxymoronic mission to begin with, to both exploit and protect the same piece of land. Exactly. I mean, that is the problem. The, the, the whole idea of multiple use is it's not operable, for example, when you have livestock grazing all across the arid lands of the West. You know, these are fragile, fragile ecosystems that are terribly affected by cattle, which is an invasive species. So when you have all these cattle, just to take one example, 
spread across the public lands. They destroy the native flora. You have cattlemen and government agencies killing off native fauna, considered pests by the livestock industry. You have the pollution of water sources, streams, rivers. You have a kind of vast biotic simplification that occurs. Uh, Similarly with oil and gas drilling, I'll just give you one example. You know, in the Pinedale complex of the upper Green River Valley of uh, Wyoming, that whole area has been subjugated for one use. And that one use consists of roads and drill pads and pipelines and compressor stations and pump jacks spread across the landscape, wiping out the native species and wiping out it basically any other use. So the multiple use idea there is null and void. It's it's just a it's just a falsehood, really. So explain this to someone who is, let's say, a New York City resident who thinks, okay, this is the home where the buffalo roam. What's the difference between the buffalo roaming these lands and cows? <laughs> well, buffalo is a native species adapted to the landscape. Buffalo graze in a very different manner than cattle. They have a very different effect, therefore, on the landscape. And there are large stretches of the American West where there were no bison historically, so you don't have a uh, ecological adaptation by the plants to grazing. So there are areas where cattle have been brought in, where previously there were no bison, and this has been incredibly destructive. The broader issue is, do we want to seed hundreds of millions of acres of our public land to a single industry that profits from the dissemination of a invasive species at the cost of native wildlife? That's the question. Well, you mentioned at the beginning this, you know, this is public land. This land is your land. This land is my land. Presumably, when you say the cattle industry, these are private corporations that are coming in. So are they paying for the right to use this public land? Does this Is there money that flows back to the public to offset the environmental costs? No and yes. So they pay a nominal fee for what's called an AUM, an animal unit month. And an animal unit month is the the assigned value to graze a cow-calf pair on public land for one month. The fee for that cow-calf pair on public land fluctuates between roughly $1.35 and $1.65 per month. On private land, on comparable private land in the West, it's something like $20. Hmm. So, So the market value or the market cost of grazing a cow-calf pair is far higher than that which is paid by the public lands livestock industry on our vast American commons, meaning really that the industry is heavily subsidized, not only subsidized in terms of the, the grazing fees, but massively subsidized by as much as $1 billion a year, according to some estimates, with a host of just incredible federal and state aid. So we're talking about everything from fencing 
road maintenance, water projects, water diversions, weed control, drought subsidies, pest control, a program of massive extermination of predators known as wildlife services run out of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and on and on these subsidies go. Now, public lands livestock operators trumpet themselves as you know, self-reliant and individualistic and rough riders of the range, when in fact they're really just welfare queens. And the hypocrisy of that, the phoniness and fraud of that, really rubbed me the wrong way. <laughs> and so it's a big theme in the book. You mentioned the Department of Agriculture. I'm assuming the Department of the Interior is also involved in some of this. Where is the yeah. who is giving these subsidies? Who is allowing for this to happen? Why isn't there greater regulation? Well, the subsidies are being handed out, as I said, at both, both the state and federal level. The subsidies are issued by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, by the Department of the Interior, by the Forest Service, which is a branch of the the Department of Agriculture by agencies within USDA, such as the Animal Plant and Health Inspection Service, which operates the aforementioned program of predator control known as Wildlife Services. So, I mean, it's just a, it's a program of subsidy that runs the gamut from federal agencies to state agencies to county governments. What about the elected representatives from these states, the senators at the federal level, who I'm assuming they have these competing interests, right, of protecting the land, but also lobbyists for the industries that operate within their states. How effective are they at either enabling or controlling these industries? What's the legislators in the western states, in the, in the major public land states, so we're talking about places like Idaho, Nevada, Utah, uh, Wyoming, Oregon, most of them are captured by industry. Mm-hmm. And so in, in the Northwest, you've got legislators who are very friendly to the timber industry mm-hmm. and therefore will make their displeasure known to the U.S. Forest Service when the Forest Service fails to kowtow to the timber industry. In uh, places like Utah, Legislators are captured by livestock in Nevada, by mining interests. So when you have land management regulators, say at the Bureau of Land Management, who step out of line, they're going to hear it from the elected officials. They're going to hear it that, hey, (laughs) you, you don't apply environmental regulation too hard, okay, buddy? because that will negatively affect the bottom line of our real constituents, which consists of you know, cowboys, drillers, miners, and the like. What about the people living in these states? Presumably some of them, and not all of them, profiting directly from these industries, and some of them concerned about the environment. Are they effective in terms of getting their state representatives, their representatives at the federal level to take into consideration these concerns? You mean concerns, the broad concerns about environmental protection, yes. ecological health? No. Yes. No, they're not. They're not, uh, they're not certainly not as effective as industry. Now, on the other hand, you have, you have the recreation industry that is qu- quite powerful because of all the money it draws in. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I see the recreation industry as just another arm of, of 
capitalist interests. I mean, recreation. Well, in the fact that recreation is all about exploiting public lands for view sheds, for fast food vistas, Mm -hmm. and for, you know, for commodified experience that can be posted to social media for narcissistic self-expression. We are all implicated. We are all implicated. It is true. It is true. So can citizens act in a way that really affects how their elected officials fund and support public lands regulators? Yes, they can, but they have to do it in a different way than than historically they've done. I think there needs to be a lot more engagement and activism and a lot more a more strident, militant attitude towards protecting the public lands because things are going badly on those lands. There's a lot of ecological destruction, a lot of environmental damage, and, that it, and it's just getting going to get worse in the age of climate change as the, as the West heats up. You mentioned cattle, and we talked about bison. Let's talk a little bit more about animals in general, because one of the things you write about is that animals are being slaughtered that threaten the livestock industry. Which animals are being killed, and what are the implications of that? The agency doing the slaughtering is called Wildlife Services. That's not what we usually think of. When we think of Wildlife Services, we think of, you know, things like wolves and Eagles. People often conflate the U.S., the United States Fish and Wildlife Service, Mm -hmm. which manages wildlife refuges across the country, hundreds of them, and also oversees the endangered species list under the Endangered Species Act. No, wildlife services is totally different. They service your wildlife by, by destroying them. So, for example, every year wildlife services will fan out across the West and kill thousands upon thousands of coyotes because the coyotes are considered to be a threat to the livestock industry. Wildlife services will slaughter beavers because the beavers dam up streams that need to be quote-unquote reclaimed for irrigation, for the growing of hay and the watering of cattle. Wildlife services will go out and slaughter your prairie dogs because the prairie dogs are considered a uh, competitor with cattle for forage. Every year, you have hundreds of thousands of animals slaughtered by wildlife services at taxpayer expense for the benefit of the public lands livestock industry. Earlier on, you mentioned Idaho, Nevada, Utah, Oregon. I think when people hear the American West, they're not entirely sure what that means, you know, because we talk about the Southwest, the Northwest, there's California, which is which is its own thing. When right. you're talking about the West in this book, how do you define that? And just how big is it? Because we have a lot of international listeners on this podcast, and they might not have a quite a sense of just how vast the land that you're talking about here is. The West, as I define it in the book, does not include California, the Pacific Coast, the Pacific Rim of, of uh, Oregon and Washington. The West is really the interior West, and that's really the arid land West. So the Columbia Basin, the Great Basin, the Colorado Plateau, the Mojave Desert, the Sonoran Deserts, a portion of the Great Plains, but really the West begins when you hit the Rocky Mountains. And and that's also, I mean, it's at, when you, once you pass the Great Plains, you pass the 100th Meridian, you pass into the into the part of the country that is where precipitation drops below 20 inches a year. Thus, you've entered the arid land. 
and the arid lands are the public lands. That's the West. The West is basically a dry country, mm-hmm. the rainless frontier. And the West remains largely public because so much of it was unsettleable because there wasn't enough rain. So this is a big question, but if you were the Wizard of the West and you were, you know, looking at all these problems from logging to oil and gas drilling to tourism to privatization of public land and the incursion of the livestock industry and the corruption, and you could say, all right, I can wave that wand and sort of fix, make one big fix that would maybe radiate outward and, and cover a lot of these problems. What would you do? What, do, what should we do? I would fully fund and enforce the Endangered Species Act because the Endangered Species Act mandates that you have to have landscape-level habitat protections for endangered species. And guess what happens if you actually implement that? You shut down extractive industry across hundreds of millions of acres. This was not a good week for that. No, this is a terrible week for that because the, the Trump administration has further, further gutted endangered species protections, as if the Endangered Species Act wasn't already a dead letter under previous administrations, including that of Obama. All right. So it's looking pretty grim for the West right now. That's why citizens need to get up. They need to get enraged and engaged and demand that their public lands, their land be managed for the great common good. All right. Well, they can start with reading your book. The book, again, is called This Land, How Cowboys, Capitalism, and Corruption Are Ruining the American West by Christopher Ketchum. Chris, thanks so much for being here. Thank you very much. So here's a request for our listeners. I get lots of feedback from you, some complaints, lots of kind words. Really appreciate it. You can always reach me directly at books at nytimes.com. I will write back. But you can also, if you feel moved to do so, review us on any platform where you download the podcast, whether that's iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or somewhere else. Please feel free to review us and, of course, email us at any time. Elizabeth Flock joins us now. She is a producer over at the PBS NewsHour, which is our partner in the Now Read This book club. Hi, Liz. Hi there, Pamela. We just announced this week our selection for September. Tell us a little bit about the book we chose. Our pick this month is one of the most talked about debut novels in recent years, and it is Conversations with Friends by the young Irish writer Sally Rooney. She's really like the the lit girl of the moment. She really is. And she's been called sort of the first great millennial author, which it's like, what does that mean? But Rooney, she's 28 now. She often writes about relationships in and how they play out in this modern era. She really intertwines the personal with the political. And this book, which was her debut novel, is set in Dublin, told through the eyes of a 21-year-old student named Francis. And it's really a book about people and how they relate, but also about big ideas that laces its way through all of Rooney's novels. And I think she told the Times when, when you interviewed her that she wanted to reach people who shared her ideology and sort of like a jaundiced view of our current social system. So 
readers can sort of expect that to be laced through a novel. It's not a light novel in a way. She's very political. She's very political. I mean, she'll write sentences like capitalism is the great destroyer of love or things like that, you know, very easily. And I think she was a Marxist growing up. And so that's very much there in all of her writing. Why do you think people keep referring to her as a millennial novelist or as the big millennial novelist or the first millennial novelist? Because, of course, there are plenty of people in their 20s that are writing books now. You could say that about a number of people. But I'm just curious, what do you think makes her feel like a kind of generational voice? Well, if you look at conversations with friends... There are conversations throughout the book between Frances and her best friend Bobby that are on Facebook, through letters, in person, and they're all sort of conveyed in the same sharp but deadpan tone. And I think people would say like sort of this millennial way of conveying yourself easily, like across platforms, but in this disaffected way that you're looking at the world, you're looking at the way the world has been presented to you, whether your personal experience matches up to that. She's captured that way of existing in the world in a way that I think previous novelists haven't yet. Yes, and previous generations are very uncomfortable, I think, or at least speaking for a data set of one with the idea of having to like convey yourself across multiple platforms. <laughs> right, right, in the exact same way. I'm, I'm interested how people of different ages will receive this book. I know it's sort of polarizing in a certain way, like some people devour it like I did, and others are like, I don't get it. So it'll be interesting to see how people discuss it. All right. Well, definitely a conversation starter of a book, beginning with its title. Absolutely. She has another book out now called Normal People, but this was her first book, and it's available in paperback. Where can people go if they want to check out the book club, if they want to discuss the book, submit questions for Sally Rooney when she goes on air? You can find us on Facebook. Just look up Now Read This. We have about 70,000 members there discussing the book, or you can join our newsletter at bit.ly backslash slash now read this newsletter. All right. So easy enough. <laughs> Facebook, there's a newsletter. And on both the PBS NewsHour website and on the New York Times website, you can do a lot of background reading about the book, read the way in which we've covered it in the past, other interviews that we've done with her, and look forward to her being on air on the PBS NewsHour towards the end of September. Absolutely. All right. Liz, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. That was Elizabeth Flock. She is a producer at PBS NewsHour and our partner on the Now Read This Book Club. Gretchen McCulloch joins us now from Montreal in Canada to talk about her new book, Because Internet, Understanding the New Rules of Language. Gretchen, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Your author bio on the jacket flap calls you an internet linguist. What is that? How long has it been around? <laughs> has it been around since the internet, you know, as the internet might put it, just been a thing? Like, when did that start? I, I don't know the first person to use internet linguist, but I know there was a book about the language of the internet published by David Crystal in 2001, republished in 2006, which was kind of, you read it now and it's really like a, a time capsule of what was going on in the era uh, talking about chat rooms and these kinds of stuff. And there's a journal about internet linguistics called Language at Internet, which has been publishing to, since 2004. So it's not particularly new, but a lot of people are now giving me credit for inventing it, which I do not Oh, think. really? I would say run with that credit. Everything's going so quickly, nobody remembers anything. <laughs> I like I like knowing that you can cite forebears, you know? Like, this is not just me that I made up this. Uh, I tried to cite a lot of people in Because Internet because... 
you know, you can't just analyze everything yourself. Speaking of forebears, what was in that earlier book on Internet language that was published in 2001 and then reissued in 2006? One thing that I think is hilarious about this David Crystal book from 2001 is uh, it has an extended discussion about MUDs, which are either multi-user dungeons or multi-user domains, mm-hmm. to an early sort of role-playing chat room that many internet users just have never heard of these. But they were really popular at the time, and they're popular, they were kind of popular before this, the wave of internet mainstreamization. And the interesting thing about MUDs is they were kind of like the dungeon is like Dungeons and Dragons mm-hmm. dungeon. And so people would go on to role play and MUDs are probably the origin of the modern day convention when you talk about yourself in the third person in the internet dialogue. Give us an example. So if I say something like nod or sigh mm-hmm. or goes off in search of socks, you know, in the middle of a text conversation. And there, there was actually a command in MUDs. You could have it appear as like Gretchen nods or Gretchen acknowledges your point but considers a different one. And you could write these things and it would appear with your username in front of it because they were designed for collaborative storytelling. So you needed this ability to actually do actions, not just talk. It's funny because writing about yourself in the third person or speaking about yourself in the third person is kind of like, you know, speaking in the royal we. It's considered incredibly pretentious traditionally. And yet on the Internet, it feels like it has the opposite effect. I think in the in the story world of the mud, it was designed to it's it's sort of it's a pro social way of building on this world for other players. So yes, you're writing about yourself in the third person, but other people are seeing you do some sort of action. You know, Gretchen rolls on the floor laughing, and so this can further the story because you're trying to tell this sort of collaborative story that exists in this sort of fantastic space. When were the first signs that the internet? was transforming the way in which people communicated in writing? Was it with internet relay chat rooms? Like, how did it happen? There's a really interesting article from, I think it's 1978, by two researchers on the, I think this would have been ARPANET, and talking about email. Because email existed in 1978, wasn't particularly popular, but it it did exist. And they have this, moment where they say one could write imperfectly or tersely even to a person one barely knew, and this was considered fine and nobody took offense. And this is not really how we think of email now. You know, people do take offense at email. People do worry about how you come across an email. But this idea that the style of writing that you do on a computer, that you do with other people, you know, in the in this sort of social space was different and that the technological space created a place where you could have a different style of writing. That's the oldest quote that I've found is this one from 1978 when most people weren't even aware of an internet or any sort of like networked computer thing. Okay, I'm going to lay out a very ignorant presumption on the part of a non-internet linguist, which is to say that is it true that prior to the internet, in large part, spoken language originated a lot of changes in the language, and then it would trickle down and eventually be accepted in writing, and that perhaps that's now flipped with the internet? You're right on with the first part. Okay. (laughs) So generally speaking, 
a lot of linguistic change comes from the informal domain because the formal domain of language, like the formal domain of many other areas, you know, whether that's clothes or something else, is fairly conservative, is fairly historic looking, says we're going to do things the way they've already been done. So in order to get innovation, you need to get it from somewhere, and often that's from the informal domain. And what I think is interesting about the internet is that it creates this expansion of the informal domain to writing. And there was informal writing before the internet. People wrote letters and postcards and diary entries and stuff like that. But it wasn't very common, and it wasn't very easy to disseminate. So you didn't have the ability to get as influenced by other people's informal writing, and people just didn't do it that much. If you didn't become a writer, you might not write much longer than a grocery list after you graduated from school. So, so it's not that the internet has become the only domain for new language. It's just that it's become one possible domain for new language, in addition to speech, which is still the case. So I'm going to probably out myself as a stuck-in-the-mud fuddy-dud of, of language, which I feel like is probably appropriate for someone who works in, in the book world. But as such, I was initially very opposed to the use of emoticons, which felt to me, you know, just incredibly juvenile and simplistic. I resisted for a long time. Now, and then I don't know when it happened, maybe in the last year, I've started using emoticons, even if only ironically, but they slip in. They're very seductive. And emoji, emoji too, or just the, just the text-based ones? or Just the text-based ones. But now maybe expand on that. What am I missing? <laughs> the, the first emoji that really caught my attention and imagination sort of thing was the hard eyes emoji. Because a lot of the other early emojis that I was being exposed to, you know, the happy face and the sad face and the winky face and stuff like that, I was like, well, I can do this with a text-based emoticon. What do I need the emoji mm -hmm. for? And then I came across hard eyes and I saw people using it. And I was like, oh, dang, this conveys something that I want to be able to convey, this sort of admiration and enjoyment and like, oh, I'm in love with this thing. Like, you know, I love this book. I love this song. Here's the hard eyes to convey that which is something that I didn't have access to in emoticons because there are just only so many punctuation symbols and they weren't really designed to be inputs for faces. They were designed for other purposes. All right. So clarify for those of us who may be still lightly confused or deeply confused about what the difference is between an emoticon and emoji and how did they start and when did they really take off? Emoticons are text-based faces or a few other designs. There's an emoticon heart, which is less than sign plus three. There's an emoticon rose, but most of them are, you know, colon parenthesis or colon hyphen parenthesis or something along those lines. Emoji are the ones that are in full color, often yellow, but sometimes you have other objects, you know, cats and dogs. And the confusion that many people have between the two is that many platforms will convert automatically your plain text emoticons into emoji without you doing anything. So Facebook chat will do this. A lot of the, a lot, a lot of like instant messaging programs will do this. And so a lot of people think they're typing emoticons, they turn out as emoji. And so they just use both terms as synonyms. How is this going to affect things? 
You think about book people, print people, we think about things like what are the collected letters for posterity going to look like in the age of, you know, Slack and texting and even just email and emojis. How How is that going to be captured? I mean, I think it's a question, that's a question of digital archiving. So presumably if your platform can digitally archive everything else that someone thing might be typing, I don't see where emoji would be difficult. The thing that could be difficult is because the designs of the emoji change from from year to year. So, for example, the early incarnations of the dancer emoji. You have Apple with the woman in a red dress, but you have Google with this blob figure. Microsoft has this disco man. And then eventually everyone starts converging around this woman in a red dress because it turns out people don't like their women in red dresses changing into blobs. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. If, but if you, someone is typing in a particular era, you might want your archival, like, collected letters, collected text messages software to display the emoji as they were typing it in that year, rather than as they've turned into so many years later. Got it. You have a chapter in your book called Typographic Tone of Voice. What does that mean? I use typographic tone of voice to refer to using especially punctuation marks, capitalization, spacing, line breaks, all of those sort of typographic cues to convey various kinds of tone of voice, whether that's shouting or emphasis or a sort of deadpan, wry sarcasm or all of these different sorts of feelings that you can convey with clever choice of punctuation and capitalization. You mentioned that sparkly tildes is intended to convey irony. And as a fan of irony, I was surprised to, to see that because one of the complaints that I've often had with email and, and internet sort of language in general is that it fails to capture, you know, things like deep sarcasm. But it sounds like that's not so. So there are proposals for irony punctuation going all the way back to 1575. And every generation or two, you'd have another philosopher saying, if only we had a sarcasm punctuation mark. And then you look at how people are using punctuation and capitalization and so on on the internet, and it turns out there are ways of doing sarcasm, and people have collectively invented those. And most of the current symbol ways of conveying sarcasm in writing play with double meaning. So they're not unambiguous creators of sarcasm, because the thing with sarcasm and with irony is that by its very nature, it relies on a certain sort of ambiguity. Because if you wanted to be completely lucid, we already have a tool for that, and it's called not being sarcastic. So you need to allow for this potential for miscommunication, this potential for it to go wrong, in order for the irony to be really effective. So some ironic punctuation tools rely on repurposed symbols of authority. So if you capitalize something, you capitalize something that wasn't intended to be capitalized, like a very important person, then that can indicate that you're being ironic about it. And the same thing for scare quotes, you know, quotations, quotation marks, they're a symbol of authority. But of course, scare quotes can also be ironic. The newer internet-y ones also repurpose symbols of enthusiasm rather than authority. So sparkle punctuation marks, this is like the tilde and the asterisk used together or the tilde is the squiggly one up in the corner by the one, for people who may not recognize it by name, or sometimes people use the sparkle emoji for this purpose as well, that can be used to say, this is great, I like it. But in a context where you don't actually think something is great, you know, like the latest news, maybe you think that's great, but maybe in context it's very clear the latest news is actually terrible. So in that case, 
that ironic enthusiasm can be conveyed by the sparkles and you know you you read into that extra layer of meaning this person couldn't possibly have actually been enthusiastic and so here's where you get the irony one of the things that people would say about email early on and i think still today is as a kind of cautionary note saying well tone gets lost in email you know you need to be very careful about how you write an email or send a text because tone doesn't come across it sounds like the language and the punctuation has evolved to take care of that, from what you're saying. I would say the tone does come across, but it doesn't necessarily come across to everybody in the same way. So we're now in this sort of transitional period where you have some people who've adopted this system of tone and don't actually find writing impoverished when it comes to tone of voice, don't actually find it hard to deduce someone's tone uh, in a text message or in an email. And you have other people who still believe that writing is fundamentally incapable of conveying this. And the problem comes when you mash these two things together. Like in a workplace, for example. In a workplace, you know, parents and, and kids, all sorts of these sort of cross-generational mishaps. It's not, strictly speaking, only generational, because if you have somebody who's kind of in the middle of one of these demographics, say they're 40 or so now, they could have spent, you know, most of those 40 years on the Internet developing a you know, sophisticated sense of typographical tone of voice, or they could have been like, yeah, I'm only going to go on the internet to check the weather and, you know, read the news and not actually try to communicate with people. And so I don't think it's capable of it. So you do have there is an attitudinal difference that intersects with the age difference. This creates complications when it comes to something like whether or not you use a period in a text. Ah, uh, yes, that I was going to get there. There's the new uses of old punctuation, like the at sign and the hashtag. And then there's just the old punctuation, which seems to have been completely changed. And the period, I feel like, has, has taken a, a, a real hit. <laughs> the period is, is really the, you know, punctuation mark du jour when it comes to interesting things that's going on on the Internet. Because it goes back to a question of what you think of as the default separation character between utterances. And in speech, we don't actually talk in complete sentences all the time. We often talk in fragments, in utterances. And this is true in informal writing as well. You can say, hey, as a full utterance, you don't need to write out every time, you know, hi, how are you, et cetera, et cetera. And some people, and so everybody's using some sort of separation character between utterances. Some people are, you know, trying to punctuate like the dialogue in a novel. But often the roughly older generation is often using a dot, 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 or a dash between each of the utterances, or sometimes people put in a period. The younger generation tends to separate utterances with message breaks or line breaks. Mm -hmm. Any of these systems are fine. It's not that one of them is better than the other or that there's a problem with one of them. It makes sense to you know pick a generic separation character in informal writing. It's not necessarily efficient to decide oh, you know, this is a full clause, I'm going to use a semicolon here, this is a partial clause, I'm going to use a comma. It may make sense to have a generic separation character because, you know, you're not necessarily committing to, is this a full clause, is this, you know, a dependent clause. So you have all these ways of, of conveying a generic separation, and the problem is when they come crashing into each other. Because if your default is, I'm going to separate each of my utterances with a line break or message break, then any other punctuation mark that you might use has the potential to take on any additional meaning. And so 
a dot, 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 which to one generation is a generic separation character, or even a period, which to one generation is a generic separation character, to another generation is a way of indicating that there's something more to be said, or there's something more to be inferred. Mm -hmm. So a dot, dot, dot can indicate a sort of expectant pause or leaving something left unsaid. So if you say something like, sounds good, with that dot, 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 what reservation do you have? Mm -hmm. You're, You're leaving something left unsaid. What is it? And maybe it's good, but maybe it's also ominous. And with the period, because of its association with formal writing, and its association with a sort of downward turn of the voice, so you say, sounds good, that's very final. It's very solemn. And this can be consonant when you put it with a negative sort of message. So if you're saying, oh, that sounds terrible. You know, you put a period there that adds a bit of extra weight. That's okay. But if you say, sounds good, then you have a positive message and this sort of solemn period and together they create that sort of dissonance with each other. And that's where the effect of passive aggression emerges. It's not that the period is always passive aggressive. It's that sometimes passive aggression emerges when you have a conflict between the seriousness of the punctuation mark and the positivity of the message. That is fascinating that the period is a passive aggressive thing. Who knew the period had such power? I always think of the dot, 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 and maybe this is a generational thing as the, there is more to say here, but I am not putting it in an email or a text or in any form of writing. Yeah, and you can definitely use a dot, dot, dot for that. And I think that that has this sort of, this ominous sense to it as well. Your subtitle is Understanding the New Rules of Language. And when you think about rules, you think about school. And I think about a high school English teacher in this day and age. If these are the new rules, does that mean that in a high school paper, kids can just kind of drop their periods and use all lowercase and, you know, go at it that way? And and we should accept that? I think it's useful to talk about distinctions between formal and informal, because We've had this distinction for a long time when it comes to speech. You know, you don't give a public speech or, you know, be a radio newscaster or TV announcer or something the same way that you have an ordinary conversation, the same way you talk to your dog. It's reasonable to, you know, learn how to do a public speech, learn how to do those particular conventions to be an engaging public speaker. And sometimes those are maybe prescriptive conventions. You're like, like, talk into the microphone, uh, make eye contact with your audience. But some of those are common sense, you know, try to be prepared and have things structured in a logical order and these types of things. And so when it comes to formal writing, you know, the actual shape of formal writing, the actual conventions that we think of as formal, those have changed. They continue to change. It's completely likely that they will change. But, you know, this idea that the skills involved in writing an essay are going to be slightly different from those involved in having a text conversation, that's not so different from the skills involved in doing a public speech are different from the skills involved in just chatting with your friends. When you think about these changes in the language, For you, as an internet linguist, are these changes, by and large, positive? Are they neutral? That's just the way it is. This is what happens to language. Or is there anything here to be lamented? You know, language change in general is is neutral. It's a thing that happens. I'm excited about internet language changes particularly because I think it's expanding our emotional repertoire. It's enabling us to do things that we couldn't do before. You know, philosophers have been writing wishful proposals for irony punctuation for 500 years, and now we have it. That's progress. <laughs> Anything that helps irony and sarcasm along. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, that's, that's something people have been dreaming of for 500 years, and now we've accomplished it. Like, good job. All right. Well, what's the internet way to end this, the internet language way to end this? <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, 
I was going to say TTYL, but that probably dates me. What is that for those who don't know? Talk to you later. Got it. Well, we'll say TTYL since neither of us are kids. And <laughs> and thank you. The book is called Because Internet, Understanding the New Rules of Language by Gretchen McCulloch. Gretchen, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Joining us now to talk about what we're reading, my colleagues Tina Jordan, Emily Aiken, and Lauren Christensen. Hey, guys. Hi, Hi Pamela. Hi, Pamela. Well, let's start with you, Lauren, because it's your birthday as we are recording, and so you have full permission to talk about anything you like. Okay. Well, I'm actually going to talk about a book I don't like. I'm halfway through John Williams's Stoner. I picked it up because it seems like, I mean, it's written in 1965, I think, and some for some reason, I think at least five of my friends outside the book world have mentioned it to me in the last few months. So there's something in the air about, about this book, and so I you know, kept having to embarrassingly tell them that I had never read it. And so, you know, I, I kind of want to see what all the hype is about. And it has all the architecture of a book that, you know, I, I thought I would love. It's a campus novel. People describe John Williams as a writer's writer. It has prose. And and as I'm reading it, the prose really reminds me of Ishiguro. It has that very sort of austere, kind of direct, un, not, not at all florid diction writing style. And, and yet I'm just finding myself really struggling through it. And I, it's, it's the story of a of a young man who sort of abandons his farm life, his, his upbringing on a farm to pursue a career in academia, and he becomes an English professor. And, you know, he has sort of an unhappy marriage. I'm at the point where they've just had a child, and the wife is sort of mysteriously sick and also kind of terrible to him. And I just, it's it's very depressing in a boring way. I just, I'm waiting, I'm like hoping something happens, but I kind of have a feeling just from the very little bit that I've heard that nothing really does happen. It's just kind of a very (laughs) realistic portrait of kind of an American life or an existence. And I think what I'm struggling with is that all of these things happen to Stoner, the protagonist, but you don't get really a sense of how he processes things in the interior. You know, I, I don't get a lot of his his mental space and, and how he feels about his relationship and his career and his family. His father passes away after he's abandoned him on the farm. And and I just kind of want to know how Stoner feels about these things. Have, have, have any of you guys read this book? It's been so long that I can't <laughs> remember. I'm so it's embarrassed. on my shelf for similar reasons that it's been, probably been on your shelf for it's a long a time. <laughs> and I have the very lovely New York Review of Books Classics edition. But every time I go to read it, people say, well, it is very depressing. And I, I do love depressing books. Yeah, me too. <laughs> but um, but but I think that it's depressing in a bleak, understated way as opposed to depressing in, in like a people are dying. Something horrible and Terrible happening. things yeah. are happening way, right. which is more my preference. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, you know. I was I was waiting for a friend at a bar the other night, and I pulled it out, and the bartender was just like, "I love that book. It's such a great book." And I just like, I really don't like it. <laughs> he he is having a moment. I I know his first novel. This is not his first novel. Yeah. Was recently reissued, and I think there's an academic press has released a biography of him. It'd be interesting to to kind of think about why. Well, we'll have to ask John Williams because I hold him responsible for yes. all the other John Williamses of the world. <laughs> Tina, what about you? What are you reading? So I'm reading a book that came out earlier this year called Courting Mr. Lincoln by Louis Bayard. Um, he's a historical novelist who's written about people like Poe and Theodore Roosevelt. And in this novel, he's writing about Abraham Lincoln and Mary Todd and someone named Joshua Speed, who was 
I believe, another law clerk, but good friend of Lincoln's with whom he lived. Right. He sort of becomes an almost adoptive kind of son in a way, right? Right. Or but possibly this, something more. Pro- possibly something more. What this novel is, is about basically the love triangle among the three of them. And it's Interesting for any number of reasons. It's told mostly by Mary Todd and by Joshua from their points of view. And I have to say the depiction of Mary Todd is a revelation because in history books as I remember her, she's either dark and forbidding and fierce or completely consumed by grief. Here is this sprightly, intelligent, witty, funny woman very strong-minded for the age, but she's almost like a Jane Austen heroine. This is my problem, though, with historical fiction, because I probably left over history major issues, but I just end up wondering, well, is any of that true? Right. And I think, you know, it's he's so interesting to me for a number of reasons, but his research is spectacular. But I was talking about this with Emily yesterday, and I said, I'm really interested. And when he crosses the line, when he takes all that research and yet then makes the character his own. Mm -hmm. Like, if it's not a believable Abraham Lincoln, we're not going to buy the novel. But what's embellished? That is always in my mind. Did you read Lincoln and the Bardo? Yes, I did. How did you feel about that in terms of those lines? I liked it fine. I think I didn't love it like most people did. I'm liking this book more. At this moment, I I should stress that even though I said it's about a love triangle, what I'm seeing at this point is Joshua Speed's infatuation Mm -hmm. with Abraham Lincoln. And and you should add, Tina, there is a genuine debate in Lincoln's scholarship over the nature of that relationship. Right. It's been debated for a long time. They shared a bed. But which was a dumb thing back then. They were two bachelors. Rooming houses were expensive. Like, that happened. It's really interesting to contribute to that scholarly debate with a a fictional Right. And I'm kind of surprised nobody has done it in a novel yet because it's been discussed by Lincoln historians for decades, I think, at this point. But I hear you, Pamela, about your objections. But I think you might be swayed by this book. Hmm. It's so smart. Well, I'd like to think that Mary Todd was more the way that you're describing. It sort of makes sense that, I mean, why else would he have married her? You know, I mean, he was such an amazing person. It's hard to imagine that he just would have gone and married this horror, you know. All right, Emily, what are you reading? Well, th- I'm reading a book that you, I believe you all have read. So please jump in. I'd love to discuss with all of you The Yellow House by Sarah Broom. This is a book that was reviewed on our cover, and I just sort of mainlined it. It's predicated on a brilliant conceit. It's a memoir, but at the center of this memoir is this yellow house, and this is the house in which Broom and her 11 siblings grew up, and the house becomes the dominant character in the book. And the book, the way she approaches this this house and its history, this house no longer exists. It was completely destroyed by Hurricane Katrina. It was in New Orleans East, which is a, was a kind of forgotten section of the city that has a kind of tragic history. She approaches 
the memoir as a kind of work of, of archaeology. This is not an angry book. This is not a self-pitying book. And yet, it's really a history of a tragedy, uh, of a familial tragedy, but also of a civic tragedy. And the house becomes this complex portrait of that. It's, it's a symbol of familial bonds. This was a poor family. Sarah's mother, at the age of 19, was widowed and took her life savings, like $3,000, and purchased this shotgun house. House, very modest house in this new part of town that was that developers had great ambitions for. It was going to be a model city in the mid-century, a kind of glamorous new place to live. And of course, that never came to pass. And what the house and that part of the city gradually become are symbols of America's racist treatment of its black citizens. So the work is just, it's an extraordinary book. Um, she has done so much research, and she exposes that research. You, you're constantly hearing about the process she underwent to write this book. She goes to libraries. She's looking at urban history. She interviews her siblings and includes unredacted transcripts of conversations with them, and they all have wonderful, uh, vivid diction. And so, and and then of course the history of this part of of New Orleans. And there's a bravura section. The book kind of climaxes in, at Hurricane Katrina when the house collapses, finally. And I, I, I wonder what you all think. I wanted the book to end there. Part of me really wanted the book to end there. But, of course, Sarah Broom, her adult life is just beginning. She's a young woman. She moves to New York. She goes to graduate school in, in Berkeley. She even does a stint in Burundi. And the further I, we got from New Orleans, the more anxious I became. And yet Sarah is a gifted enough writer that she's constantly using these sections and these experiences to kind of contrast with New Orleans and her memories of home and is constantly coming back physically to live in New Orleans. She can't she can't leave it. She keeps returning. She takes a job with the mayor's office. She leaves again. Then she comes back to write the book. So it, it's really a moving and beautiful portrait. I agree. It was one of my favorite nonfiction books of this year. And to, to your question, I appreciate it, actually, that the book went on even when the house was, was physically gone. One of my favorite lines in the book is, and I hope I don't misquote this, but she says, how to resurrect a house with words. The metaphor of the house it serves so well because, of course, it, it is a physical object, but its meaning and its import and its the safety and the umbrage it, it provides just far surpasses the physical structure. One of the things that I loved about this book so much is how Sarah describes this conflict that her mother had between her pride and her preservation of the house. You know, she was so immensely proud of this modest house and yet none of the children were ever allowed to bring guests into the house. And these children, I mean, there were 12 children and spanning multiple decades. So for decades, no one outside of the Broom family was allowed within its walls, which I just think is such a fascinating, complicated way of conceiving of what a house means. It's actually like protecting the, the people within it from the outside world. I just, I thought it was brilliant. Tina, what did you think? I, I loved it too, as you know. I'm like Emily, the last section of it after Katrina, I didn't think was as strong as the rest of the book. I think what Lauren is picking up on too, I just wanted to stress, like, I think this is an unusual thing she does in the book, Look, taking physical fragments and investigating them for their emotional meaning and their psychological meaning. Mm-hmm. So the pieces of the house, it's a, they're very physical descriptions. Mm-hmm. And the highway. 
the highway. They, the house is situated near a busy highway. Actually, one of the siblings is hit by a car. They have to cross this highway. So every 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 sort of physical entity in the book has a kind of deeper meaning, uh, an affective meaning, and she's just brilliant at, at at that kind of work, excavating objects. Do you think that she carries on the story after the house is gone? in a way to highlight the fact that you always have some kind of home and what does it mean, especially if you're out in Burundi and and Berkeley and New York, places that are very far afield from East New Orleans, like what does home mean when you know when it no longer actually physically exists? I think that's exactly it. She's searching for home and she's trying to figure out who she's going to be as an adult. And part of that is what is my relationship to the place I come from, to my family? And New Orleans is part of who she is. It turns out it's a place she can't really leave, psychically, at least. Well, I read a book that I know that at least one of you read as well. It was Ling Ma's Severance, which came out last year and is out in paperback now. And I thought it was really brilliant. It's a debut novel, really ambitious. It's a social commentary in the guise of a post-apocalyptic novel. And it starts off with humanity has already been wiped out, which is a premise that I adore. And I'm always interested in like, you know, ever since I think reading Stephen King's The Stand in high school, I've I've, I'm drawn to those books. I'm always interested in who the writer decides is left standing and why these characters. And and that's very interesting in this book. What's also interesting is the nature of the thing that has wiped everyone out, which is called Shen fever. And Shen fever is a not actually a virus, but a fungus that emerges from China, which is where the author herself was born, although she lives in the U.S. now. And the way in which a person who is fevered, which is how the book puts it, behaves is they get stuck in the routine that they were in before they died. Who of you have read it? Tina, have you read it? I haven't read it. Emily, have you read it? No, I haven't. So they get stuck in the routine of whatever they were doing before they died. And these routines are themselves kind of commentaries on the sort of anesthetized consumer culture. You know, so if someone was doing some kind of menial office chore at, at work, like there they are shuffling the papers, but they're doing it with their mind sort of diseased and gone, or one person is, you know, endlessly trying on clothes in a closet um, <laughs> or making dinner repeatedly and, and all of the people in her in their midst are kind of going through the motions of everyday life, but in a kind of mindless, decayed fashion. So it's not only about sort of the nature of contemporary work and contemporary what she would probably call late capitalist um, soulless culture. Yes, the soullessness of this kind of life. But she also brings in themes of immigration. The protagonist is the child of two immigrants from China. She talks about race and a lot about gender politics. And one of the people who is a survivor is this really insidious character named Bob, who's a gun-toting religious zealot white man who sort of elects himself nominally in charge of things. And a lot of it is about the sort of dynamics between him and this other gang of survivors. So I thought it was not only really ambitious in terms of trying to marry that genre with this social critique, 
but in its execution, because it's a total page turner. And I was reading it while I was traveling. And it was the kind of book that like when I had jet lag and I was waking up in the middle of the night, I was like, oh, good. <laughs> I've got something to do. Um, so uh, I loved it. What did you think? Yeah, I mean, I thought it was great. I It was one of our notable books last year. It was just such an ambitious project. I mean, I think this year we're seeing so many of these sort of dystopian kind of surveillance state books, novels. And I think this this severance really predated those by, by several months. And it was definitely the first in a trend. All right. Let's run through the books again. Lauren? I'm reading Stoner by John Williams. The Yellow House by Sarah Broom. And I'm reading Courting Mr. Lincoln by Louis Bayard. And I read Ling Ma's Severance. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. And you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. I write back, not right away, but I do. The Book Review Podcast is produced by the great Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media with a major assist from my colleague, John Williams. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Palmer.